Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast in my home is my friend Michael Finch. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you, Richard. Um, As you know, listeners, I try to give an overview of my guest and the scope of the podcast. You can kind of get a feel before you listen. Um, But this is going to be a podcast with Michael talking about um, his own suicide attempt and being a survivor of suicide and uh, feeling then to talk about this on social media to help others. And so if you um, are suicidal, you're trying to help someone that's suicidal, you want to better understand this space, I think Michael can give us ideas and perspectives. And I applaud him in advance for his courage to talk about this in his life. He's also going to tell his story that's part of the same story as a gay Latter-day Saint. And just to give you more of a bio, currently Michael, who is 27 years old, returned missionary from New York City. He's a student at Brigham Young University. He's a political science major. He's a Chinese minor. I think he either learned Chinese on his mission or did you learn it before your mission? I did not know any Chinese before my mission. I went into the MTC and was actually the only member of my district who had had no prior experience. And did you get Chinese on your call or did it come later? It was right there. I'm going to the New York, New York South mission, and I've been called to serve in the Mandarin Chinese language. And it was quite a shock for me. <laughs> wow. But you've taken this um, and have learned Chinese and are a Chinese ma- ma- minor. Um, Michael grew up near Palm Springs in Indio. Correct. In Indio, California. And um, knows dry heat. I like dry heat listeners. I don't do as well with um, humid heat, but I actually love the dry heat. Mm. We mentioned you served your mission in Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. He's working towards a career in international diplomacy. And so that's sort of his story. Um, Is that okay for an introduction, Michael? Yeah, uh, that's been great. I am. And I just also want to talk about as well in this podcast, just my experience with suicide personally and how that also relates to um, accepting and learning to understand uh, being gay and my sexual orientation, um, as well as, you know, having been raised in the church and being a lifelong member. That's great. And if you're straight and working through suicidal ideation, I think the principles, Michael, apply it would apply to you. So don't just turn off this podcast if you're straight and working through suicidal ideation. I think mm-hmm. the things Michael will apply to anybody in this space. And I became aware of Michael as he um, answered some questions on an Instagram post about suicide that were very thoughtful. And then I went to his Instagram page and talked and saw, and maybe we'll link to these in the show notes, where on March 24th, 2022, he and Instagram talked about his being a, suic- a survivor of suicide and that, a, that his attempt was a year earlier in March of 2021. So we'll get into that. But I just admired him. And as I read through his Instagram, I thought of the courage of Michael to talk about this and probably the long journey to talk about this because some wouldn't. Um, and now here he is on the podcast talking about this to a brighter audience, a, a wider audience. So our joint prayer is this is helpful for you as we talk about this subject and help others that are walking this road. So I'll just kind of turn it over to you, Michael. Maybe you can start with growing up and um, just where you ever want to start. Yeah. Thank you, Richard. So as you said, I was born and raised in the Palm Springs area of California, just always lived in Indio and 
went to school and graduated from there. I, and I was also, um, both my parents were members of the church. My mom is, was, you know, born into the church as well. And I actually have pioneer ancestries through her side of the family. Uh, my dad was a convert to the church and he um, joined the church when he was 19 and, you know, has been an active member since that time, especially, and was the first member of his family to join the church, actually. So, and at this point, all of his family had joined the church as well. So, growing up, I was, many people could have described me as just the typical, you know, Mormon guy. I was very active in the church. I always went to church on Sundays. I went to mutual every week. I earned my Eagle Scout award. I did my duty to God award. I was, you know, the president of young men's quorums every so often. And I was very much a, what you could say it was a stereotypical Mormon at that time. And, you know, part of that, my family were huge BYU fans. Um, my dad actually played golf on the BYU men's team. And so he's a very, very into BYU sports and as is my, my mom and many members of my family. And so we, um, I grew up going to those games all the time. And so very early on, I knew BYU was the place that I wanted to go to school. Um, and then another thing is that I, you know, I was always trying to, you know, be somebody that worked hard. Um, I know that Mormons have a, at that time, I knew that Mormons have a, you know, kind of a reputation of being, you know, hardworking and just trying to do everything as well as they can. But, um, and so for me, that ended up being, you know, I did very well in school. I was a high achiever. I was the valid, one of the valedictorians of my high school graduating class. I graduated with a diploma from the International Baccalaureate Program, known as IB, um, which involved you know, several hoops that I jumped through. And I did actually learn a lot from that that I enjoyed. But at that time, it was mostly I wanted the status of achievement because I felt that's how I would feel fulfilled in my own life. And then going on from there, I, you know, I graduated, like I said, I was valedictorian and I got into BYU pretty easily. And then from there, once uh, the September after I graduated, I started my first year at BYU. Thanks for telling us about that and um, respect for what you accomplished academically at, um, in your high school and the IB program and the valedictorian. That's really cool. So I'm yeah. glad you shared that with our listeners. and. And here you're off at BYU. Tell us more about BYU. So I get to BYU my first year. And, you know, as I'm sure there are many people listening that know what BYU is like as well. And there are, you know, there are certainly many great things about BYU. It's a great school. Um, there are so many people there that, I'm, that I have made friends with and have been able to talk to and feel safe and comfortable around. Um, However, there are also some, some parts of BYU, especially socially and culturally, that are 
difficult for many people, uh, namely one of those being BYU's dating culture. When I first got to BYU, I was living in the dorms in Heelman Halls. So I wanted to make friends because I was new. I was the only one from where I grew up that was going to BYU that year, starting at BYU that year. And so I needed to make friends. I didn't want to just be on my own. And so I started talking to other guys in my dorm um, and other people in the ward. And I learned very quickly that one of the most common topics of conversation was dating and dates that people were going on and sharing about. So I decided, okay, I, if this is what people are talking about and I'm trying to make friends, I'm going to try to go on dates. Um, so I, you know, there were plenty of wonderful girls in my ward at that time. And I um, went around and started trying to you know, see if there was anybody that wanted to try. However, I very quickly realized that it was difficult for me for some reason. I, there weren't a, many girls where I was trying to say, like, oh, I could easily see myself going on a date with her and enjoying it. I, it was, just kind of like, yeah, I could ask her and it would check the box, but that doesn't, the way that the guys were describing the dates didn't, that wasn't how it felt. And so I felt I was noticing that something was missing. So after several attempts and just of uh, attempts of trying to find dates, but also going on dates, I very much started to wonder is like, is it you know, what, what, where's the issue exactly? And after some searching, I kind of realized that I am, you know, feel I am and have always felt attraction towards men than I have towards women. And just the more that I thought about that and the more examples that I saw from my own life in which I said, wait, that, that's what that is. I realized that I was gay and was attracted to men, not women. And part of the reason that was so difficult for me was having grown up in the church, I didn't realize that you know, being gay was an option for me. I didn't realize that was something that people did or had. And so I always just kind of thought of it as like, oh, that's them and not me. But at this point, I am starting to realize it is me. That that does apply to me. And the more I think about it, the more examples I think of, the less I can deny that. And so, you know, having grown up in California, I was in eighth grade in 2008, which is when the debate over Prop 8 was happening over the definition of marriage in the state of California. And it was a very talked about subject at school. And so I, and the church was quite clear to members there that we needed to support that measure in order to get it passed, that marriage should be defined as being between a man and a woman. And we were told to organize and, you know, go out and basically campaign for it, you know, go door to door, tell people about the measure, make sure they know like what the options are. and. You know, tell people that they should 
say yes on Prop 8 in order to protect the sanctity of marriage and have it be defined as being between one man and one woman. And as part of that, the way in which you know, LGBTQ individuals were described was very one-sided. I only ever heard the church's side on that. I never, growing up, I knew people who were gay or LGBTQ, and I never talked to them about that. So I never had that perspective and never saw it in myself. Thanks for taking us back to where you were. That's probably eight years ago. If you're, I'm doing the math in my head, 27 to 18. It's been a while. <laughs> um, taking us back to where you were alone. Sounds like you're out to nobody. You're just kind of coming out to yourself. Mm-hmm. You're connecting the dots of the past, kind of look backwards and saying, this is this dating thing really isn't clicking for me mm-hmm. like it is for other guys. It's not just, it's not, and there's probably other reasons potentially why dating comes hard for some people that are straight, but I think you're self-reflecting enough to realize what's going on here is my sexual orientation doesn't nat- match the cultural norms um, that my roommates are able to sort of freely embrace and it doesn't come for me like it comes for them. And I assume that's pretty scary um, just to sort of now realize this thing that you've heard as prop eight mm-hmm. portrayed that way is actually who you are. Um, and that for most people can be pretty scary. So yeah, keep going forward unless you want to stay on that. I, um, it sounds like you could talk about your decision to serve a mission. Cause I think you go on a mission after. A, and so you're kind of, aware, not out to anybody, and you decide to serve a mission. Yeah. And so before I go on to that, I will say, um, you know, once I have that realization that, you know, I am gay, uh, at that point, I was using the term same-sex attracted because that was, you know, the term that the church used and that the church uses and that was all that I knew. Um, Where When you talked about, you know, wanting not... my own experiences not matching up with the cultural norms followed by my roommates. It's even further than that. It having grown up in the church and really only knowing that side of it, the cultural norms of the church were all that I knew. And I, when I realized I was gay, having that specific example of, you know, the prop eight, you know, that, you know, homosexuality is something that we need to fight back against was that in addition to, you know, the teachings of, you know, what the church believes about the law of chastity and teaches and tries to, and what they have taught about, you know, feelings of same-sex attraction, homosexuality, um, and the past, all of that together made me feel very much like my life was over. The only life I had ever known was, you know, being a member of the church, being a Mormon, being LDS. And very suddenly I realized that, you know, I was gay and I wasn't sure if I could be a member anymore. I did not know. It it came, hit me all at once because it was never an option presented to me. I just, I had no idea what to do and I wasn't sure if where where to go from there if it could go from there so at that point in time um just due to my experience with having grown up in the church i decided that 
at that point, I was just going to not worry about it. I was going to live my life the way I had always planned because, you know, growing up, I'd always been taught. It was like, you know, you're going to be baptized. You're going to get the priesthood. You're going to go on a mission. You're going to get married in the temple. All of those steps and that plan basically of what I should do in order to be a good member of the church. So I said, all right, right now, a mission's next. It's here right now. And I'm going to go still because I really want to, you know, be a member of the church and be faithful like I have always been. And I've always wanted to be because that's what I've been taught. So I did. So I sent in my mission papers. I got called to the New York, New York South mission, um, speaking Mandarin Chinese. I served in uh, Brooklyn and Queens specifically there. And then I also had a couple transfers in Staten Island um, outside of the Chinese program where I was able to meet more members and work with other missionaries that were, that was wonderful to do as well. So. I went on my mission and I served from 2014 to 2016. And there was, you know, I had a lot of great experiences on my mission. I learned a lot. Um, Mandarin Chinese is, as you said, I'm minoring in Chinese currently, and it has become a part of my life that I really enjoy and love. Um, I got to meet so many wonderful people because of my mission. And so I do appreciate the things that it has given me. Um, in addition to, the challenges that it presented as well and some of the things that were difficult. Um, thanks for your courage to serve a mission. I just, you know, serving a mission listeners, as you know, is hard. <laughs> um, I wrote down this line. You said, um, my life was over the way I had envisioned it and realizing you're not straight, you're gay, same-sex attraction hmm. is a paradigm shift for a young Latter-day Saint. Yeah. Um, and I can see where you'd use that language because there's no, you've gone this path where you've hit these milestones and now there's continuing to hit those milestones is sort of without outside of your control. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't do anything to become ungay. Um, I think Absolutely. we're learning that the church isn't asking people to somehow become ungay. Church's website's pretty clear about the sexual orientation is not a choice. Yes. And um, so I honor your language there, but I also honor your courage. Thank you. To continue to serve a mission and continue to be alive, not knowing, you know, hope is one of the greatest things we can give people, but to, for someone to sort of rec- feel no hope. Um, yes. And just one more point that I want to make sure I add, because it will, it is important to the topic of suicide later coming up. I. Suicide ideation was something that started at that point as well. Before I am, you know, I am a person that overthinks and, you know, questions myself a lot and has a lot of anxieties and doubts and has dealt with depression before that. But it never was at the point where I, you know, was having to deal with suicide ideation at that time, just the stresses of school. Um, But once I was realized that I was gay and that I, I, at that point when I felt like my life was over, looking back now, I can see that that is where the suicide ideation started, where I think, what's the point? Should I keep going in my life? Should I keep living? 
Um, so I'm glad you took us back there and helped us understand that it probably started there. And um, that's probably what you help other people where that's just, it's in their life and they kind of need the skills that you're going to give them or the insights. Um, I happen to know your mission president. He happened to know we were visiting and I won't mention his name, just um, keep that out of the podcast. But your mission president and his wife, your mission leaders, you know, love you and they talk about your Chinese. And it's interesting you didn't even know Chinese. And that's yes. one of the things they talked about, how much you love Chinese mm-hmm. and um, embrace that language and that culture. And I think it's a real credit to you that you've been dealt some last minute curveballs, so to speak, and have sort of risen to the occasion, hit them head on. And not that it's been easy, but you sort of had two major curveballs in your life, um, learning Chinese yes. and realizing you're gay and kind of having both those happen at the same time. It was very, thankfully, I, one, one of the ways in which I dealt with that was I was, when I decided to go on my mission, I was trying as much as possible not to think about being gay, to think about my sexual orientation. So I was just focusing on the Chinese at that point. I did compartmentalize a bit, and um, which wasn't the best way to do it as far as, you know, dealing with, you know, coming to terms with my sexual orientation and being gay, but it did help a lot with learning Chinese. So and as far as my mission presidents go, I just want to just state clearly, I had the privilege of having two different mission presidents and both of them and their wives are just some of the most amazing people I've ever met. Um, as well as I had the chance to meet so many wonderful people that were missionaries with me in New York City, um, who I worked with very closely. Um, the Chinese program that we had there um, teaching in Mandarin Chinese was smaller and we all got to know each other and there were many people that I got to meet from there that I still talk to that are very important to me and have been so wonderful to have in my life. Talk about um, your emotional health. This isn't really in the script, so I'm going to ask you an off-scripted question. Sometimes right. um, listeners, my guests bring an outline, which helps me as the moderator and Michael has done that, but talk about um, my guess is, like all missionaries, your mental health kind of ebbed and flowed during a mission, and you've kind of got this added thing going on, you're gay, and not out to anybody. What were things that, I'm thinking of local leaders, um, people that know there's closeted gay people in their stewardship and want to do things that don't spike your anxiety, or companions that may even be listening saying, I, I may have a closeted companion. Um, I want to be sort of thoughtful enough that I'm not going to escalate his or her anxiety by saying things. Is there any advice you'd give, just as I'm assuming your anxiety ebbed and flowed, that things happened that we could do better? Or things people did good you'd like to repeat? (laughs) Yeah. uh, One thing with that that I will say is, first of all, like I had stated, I was trying to just put that off and not think about it and just say, okay, I'm here to be a missionary and I'm going to get this job done. I'll deal with that later. And so as many people and many people have tried to do that same thing as well. And I think talking with them, many have said, and this is my experience as well, that that can only be put off for so long. And eventually it's going to come back. And the longer you put it off, the more it just eats away at you and will 
just be there. So I think knowing that if somebody is, you know, trying to hide it or not talk about it or purposefully just keep that hidden, knowing and understanding that that is something that is very stressful for them to do and is taking up a lot of their effort and energy. If it seems like maybe you have a companion who is very seem seeming very preoccupied recently um lost in thought just dissociating a bit and just catching them like that just try to and instead of making a judgment try to ask a question try to you know be objective and thinking what possibilities are happening here um and being sensitive to those as well not trying to base those possibilities off of you know what you think might be the case or what you're afraid might be the case even and you know just letting them if you think something's wrong letting them have the space and the option to you know come up to you and say and let them decide how it's going to be shared and in what context and if, if you want to be supportive in that manner, just try to, you know, let them know that, you know, if something's bothering them, that they can talk to you, um, that they can, you know, ask, they can ask you questions um, in order to try to see where they're at, because it can be very difficult if you're preoccupied, but you're trying to find somebody to talk to about it because you feel like you're about to explode keeping it all in. You need to, generally people will want to try to test the waters and ask questions or bring up a certain story or context in order to kind of gauge your reaction to it to see how safe it is to talk to you. And I, I think that's very important to just be very explicit and demonstrating that you want to help but also that you're very much willing to listen and try to understand try to empathize it's a really great segment michael and one of the things i think we can do is that if i could push a button in the church i i, I don't push change doctrine buttons in the church but I often think of what we can do to mm-hmm. change the culture and one of the things that i think and one of the probably the unattended consequences of Prop 8 is we, if we do word association, we think LGBTQ people, we often think of this other group of people we're trying to make peace with or legal peace with. Mm. Most of our church talks don't talk about LGBT people in the context of finding peace and harmony with this other group of people. But I, the button I wish we could push is talking about LGBT was our people. Yeah. And and that would be 90% of what the content you'd hear growing up would be is, you know, LGBT people are Latter-day Saints are in our congregations. We need them. They have valuable gifts and contributions. They're walking a hard road. And, you know, and so if you're a companion or a local leader or a parent, I think that's one of the things you can do. And there's, you can go to the church's website and find kind things our leaders have said about LGBT people. So to test the water is a pretty good phrase. And I think it's up to us as allies to create just the kind of conversations we're having around groups of people 
that we may not usually say kind things about, you know, can create a culture that you people know you're safe to open up to, whether you're a parent or a companion and safe to open up about just mental health issues. So if you're just saying kind things about people working through mental health um, versus saying, well, they just got to whatever and read their, you know, whatever, to, then you don't become a safe person. But I, I'm asking you more questions than I probably should because I want to keep you going on your script. I so. appreciate all the questions, you know. <laughs> doing a good to job. Me, to me, questions are, especially if delivered correctly, they're a demonstration of I'm saying I want to learn. Well, thank you. So bring us back to you after your mission. You fly home to California, I assume. Um, you're back in California. Pick it up wherever you want to, Michael. Yeah. So after my mission, I go home. I, you know, go, go back to California um, to start with. And I just, um, I'm planning to return back to BYU to start there again. Um, and having, you know, I can finally try to think. I was like, okay, where am I at in regards to being gay and my sexual orientation? And it is, not only has it not gotten better, um, it has grown far worse in that sense of how much I'm worrying about it. Um, at this point, I have really not come out to anybody uh, or let them know about my sexual orientation. And I really didn't have any... It was still something that was just only I was dealing with. and. I tried to date women again. Um, there were, you know, several girls. There was one who I had written throughout my mission that had been just a wonderful friend uh, throughout the first part of my life. And I knew she definitely had feelings about me. And I, she, she was a wonderful person, but I just never was able to have that attraction to her because that physical, that romantic attraction to her, because it just wasn't possible for me. Um, and I tried to, you know, there were a couple other girls that I dated as well that I knew that are still great friends. And after trying those couple times, I finally said, I don't think this is going to work. And so, because the reason I had been trying to date women is, like I said, I was, this is by, the, this is the life that I was used to, that I had always planned on, you know, you know, get baptized, get the priesthood, go on a mission, find an internal companion, get married to them in the temple. And I, you know, was trying to date women because I was trying to follow that plan. And I wanted to, you know, follow the way I'd always been taught to, because at that point it would have, I didn't want to try to relearn how to live my life possibly without the gospel or, you know, in a way that, you know, wasn't what I had always tried, what I had always expected. So, and that led to me really thinking, I, you know, how much longer can I do this? How much longer can I stay in the church? And I really, Know, tried coming out to a couple people at a time and just letting them know just trying to see if like if because first of all I didn't I could no longer just keep it to myself and I had to do something I was like okay I will 
you know, tell a person here and there in order to alleviate it enough so that I don't feel like I'm just so alone in feeling this. Um, until eventually that just wasn't working. Like it was never, it was becoming less and less effective each person I told. And I really felt like not telling people was essentially like lying that I wasn't being honest about who I was, that I was hiding, you know, the true Michael Finch from everybody and including just trying to deny who that was to myself as well. And at that point I decided finally I'm going to publicly come out. And there are many people that are, don't feel a need to do that, who don't, who can feel comfortable just, you know, telling whoever it comes up to naturally. Um, for me, I had grown up trying to not, you know, be direct. You know, I tried to not, like I tried to dance around the subject. Being direct and just saying something straightforward was not something we did in my family. And so at that point, I finally decided, it's like, I'm just going to come out, say that I'm gay and just have that be the end of the conversation. There, needs, there doesn't need to be any more speculation. And after I did that, it was one of the biggest feelings of relief that I had ever felt in my life. I didn't feel like, you know, I felt like I crossed off my checklist. I don't have to hide this anymore. I don't have to put effort into trying not to come off, trying not to seem gay and come off that way. And no longer having to think about that or do that was just allowed me to put energy towards other things in my life and actually live my life much more completely. Um, thank you for your courage to come out. And I think as I hear these stories, listeners, I, I didn't understand why people needed to come out. I don't, I mean, straight people, but then I realized straight people are out. Your roommates at Helaman Halls were out as straight because they were talking about dating. They're in a heteronormative culture yeah. and you're a sexual minority, but your courage to come out. And just, I like the word relief. A lot of people have used that word relief when they first come out. And it's just that, and I read this quote a lot because it helped this Brene Brown quote. Yeah. Fitting, it sounds like you know it. Fitting it is about assessing a situation and become, becoming who you need to be in order to be accepted. And you did that for mm -hmm. a couple decades. Belonging, on the other hand, doesn't require us to change who we are. It requires us to be who we are. And so that really resonates with a lot of people that have come out. And then we can just, and then your relief is a great word. It's the only word. That's what it is. It's how immediate it felt was very much why I knew that's exactly what that was. Like how immediate and just impactful it was on me. Like it was honestly just so much weight taken off my shoulders. I felt it physically in that sense. I felt I was able to stand up a little taller and didn't feel like I had to, you know, make myself smaller in order to try to hide or not draw attention to myself. And I think when you talk about hide, I think of, I go to the Garden of Eden mm -hmm. um, and the shame that um, Satan tried to create, um, run and hide. And I think about um, the shame you sort of lived with about this part of you that's how God created you. Yeah. Um, and you should be on the same moral footing. I go back to Helaman Halls with your, you know, your straight buddies, and you all should look in the mirror and feel you're created as intended. 
And I think shame is Satan's tool to that. And our culture does this. So it's, it's hard to undo this, but just creating so much shame that this is, this part is who you are. And so I recognize sometimes when people come out, the shame and their relation with God sometimes even increases and their authentic connection with others even increases because this pretending isn't going on and you're able to connect on an honest, vulnerable way. Yeah. And I like what you said about how you stated it as created as intended. Um, because when I have tried to, you know, talk about church members with this on the subject before, um, they have said that, you know, God didn't necessarily created you. This is just maybe a consequence of this life. There are, you know, po- um, you know, there are a lot of possibilities of what could happen that we just don't know. Um, but I, you know, the w- the way in which this confused me was I had always been taught that you know we have a creator, um, you know God was the one who created us and not only created us he created the plan of salvation as well he knows what the plan is for everybody and so the fact that God wasn't aware of maybe not wasn't aware of but that you know, me being, me being gay was part of his plan, um, doesn't sit with me because, you know, he's the one who created the plan. He's an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God. And if, if he was the one that knows the plan and if, if the plan is perfect, then he knew exactly that when I was going to be here, that I was going to, that I was going to be gay, that I was going to have a sexual orientation that was not the same as many as most people that have that are on this earth and because he is all powerful all knowing i have to think that that had to be intentional and for whatever reason and i don't pertain to know everything about it there are many things that i don't know but because i don't know i also can't assume that me being gay doesn't have a specific purpose. And it would seem that it does because that was part of the way in which Heavenly Father made me. That's a really good segment, Michael. I'm thinking of closeted people that are hearing that and it's just giving them hope and healing. And I think the potential they can connect with Heavenly Father. Because I think if you look in the mirror and you think intentional, I like that word and that who you are is who you're intended to be. The ability then to have, to look to God and say, well, I can have this meaningful relationship with you and you can guide me in my life because I've been, this is, I'm your son. That's our doctrine. Yeah. <laughs> you're a son of heavenly parents who love you. And, um, and so to me, this, you know, we compare this to lots of different things. And I talked that in my first book and I don't want to spend too much time, but mm-hmm. You didn't try this and become this. Addictions you try and you become and it leads to a bad outcome. This is not like that. There's a lot of things we try to put it in the same bucket as, but the best bucket I can put yeah. it in is, is I'm blue-eyed, which is a minority. My, my mother has red hair. That's a minority. And this is just part of the beautiful diversity that's needed. But it, everybody needs to be on the same moral footing. And I think of the body of Christ mm-hmm. that Paul taught in Corinthians and every part of the body of the Christ is needed. So I like that you're using these words, there's purpose in my sexual orientation. Yeah. And I believe that. And I don't think listeners that sort of 
inviting people to have purpose in their sexual orientation is enabling. I think that just, I think it helps them in the long run to connect with God and feel authentic. So anyway. And I would even say that with, you know, not only was, was it not, oh, I'm going to try this and just see how it goes. It was the exact opposite where when I thought it might be a possibility, it was like, I'm going to try everything I can to avoid this and not be it and try to be the way I was taught in the church. And I think that's the case for you know many other LGBTQ people. They really want to, because change is always scary, especially change in a perspective where you might have to admit that you've held incorrect perceptions because you don't know what would have to be what the what would have to replace those at that point either and so i i think the gut reaction like in my is very similar to you know what i've talked about in that i really tried to you know do what i had always what i had always been taught and it just i never could make any progress because there was never any progress to make it was never going to be successful Thank you. So keep telling your story. Eventually going to, even though you're in a better spot, eventually um, leads to a suicide attempt. Exactly. And that's actually where we've arrived in the story at this point. So I, you know, I, I came out publicly and it did, you know, that relief was amazing. Um, But that doesn't mean that all of the struggles that I had had and the, you know, habits and the depression, anxiety and especially the suicide ideation just suddenly leaves. It doesn't immediately fix all the problems, especially because um, having dealing with that created the problems in my life that were, you know, very hard to deal with at that point. I, because I was thinking so much about when I had that suicide ideation, wondering if, you know, I should just end my life because it might not be worth it to keep going. Um, I lost so much motivation because of that, because every time I try to think of like, oh, I should do this because I could, you know, improve myself this way, or I could have this opportunity later on. I thought there was always that thought that came in. It was like, yeah, but, you know, is there even going to be a later on? Am I going to make it to that point? So, I don't know, what's the purpose in trying? And especially that motivation just made it very difficult. That lack of motivation made it difficult to really push myself. And because of that, I got stuck. I felt, and I got stuck and felt very stuck in my life for so long. And because I was trying to, you know, deal with suicide ideation and how scary and terrifying that could be, let alone the regular depression and anxiety, I, you know, I had to come up with ways to cope with those feelings um, in order to, you know, not finally make the decision to end my life and attempt suicide. I, and those just kind of compounded over time, you know, motivation didn't get any better. I was, you know, the habits were developing to just close myself off and try not to talk about those things still because you know while i had come out and you know been open about being gay it was still much harder to be open about having suicide ideation because what i've noticed a lot with that is 
whenever you do talk about that or mention to some somebody that you are you know having thoughts of suicide the reaction is to immediately assume the worst often you a lot of people think we're in a critical situation you know this person is thinking about you know ending their life which because it is very much a reactionary yeah, you know, a reactionary attempt to deal with it, the person then that is actually dealing with it will, you know, panic and react back quickly as well. And that can be very unhelpful in that sense. And I was trying to, you know, I was trying to solve things in my own life. And at a certain point, it just started feeling like, you know, is it too late? Did I not act fast enough? Did I, you know, Am I at a point of, did I pass a point of no return? And, you know, there were some things that specific um, incidents that happened all at once in which I felt very alone. I felt like I had failed in trying to, you know, improve my life and move past that. And I finally, the pain of it was so so bad that I finally thought I, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. I feel too alone. I've tried to talk to people and it hasn't helped because it's been too isolated and I, I still feel alone because of it. I, whenever I've tried to talk to people about it, I've had to do it in secret. I've had to make sure I really trust a person, a person before I talk about it because if they say something, then it could affect me so negatively. And from there, you know, it doesn't feel like I'm being open about it. It's still something that I'm having to hide. And, you know, people talk about pain and dealing with that and, and dealing with depression and suicide ideation. Um, and that is certainly part of it, but I don't think it's the main part of it that I felt. Mostly the biggest thing that I felt was that I just felt tired. I had no energy left to move my life forward because I was trying to deal with this and hide it and just not let it completely ruin my life for so long that I that was taking up all of my energy and I wasn't able to have any, any energy left to, you know, make the progress in my life that I needed and wanted. And I think that's important to say because, you know, I've heard it said and it is getting better now that suicide is being more talked about at this point that, you know, people who commit, pe people who do suicide are people who have given up. And from my own perspective, that's not true. What I see is that I tried for so long. I tried. And just for the context, this is I, this, my suicide attempt happened last year in March of 2021. And when I first started really dealing with suicide, with suicide ideation was the um, September of 2013 which is about seven and a half years for seven and a half years. I didn't quit. I didn't give up. And I tried 
to do everything I could. I th- tried to think of every answer. I asked as many people as I could. I went to several different therapists in order to try to talk about it. And what many people that I want to say quickly don't know is that finding a therapist is a process. Not every therapist is going to work for you. And so if you just, if you think you're not quite getting what you want out of uh, meeting with a certain therapist, or if you think that, um, you know, you're not ever going to be completely comfortable talking to a certain therapist in order to really open up and start talking about what needs to be talked about, then there is no shame in saying, you know, thank you for the help that you've given. And I just need to find something, somebody who really will be able to get me to where I want to be. And so I tried that. I tried it with many different people and I never, at that point, I never really found who I wanted to in like trying to talk to a therapist. Because as I, as I said, growing up, saying being direct in things was not what we did we kind of just danced around subjects we avoided subjects completely if we thought it might be a hard conversation and we you know just kept certain things hidden and at that point it was just too hard for me where i said i'm like I'm done. I did all I could. I really tried, but you know, I gave it my best shot. But this is all I all I can handle, and I you know did. I did try to end my life, and fortunately, I was not successful. Sorry, fortunately, I was not able to end my life. I, my reason in the change of term is, you know, a suicide should never be described as successful. It is. And I get that's not the feeling of what many people are trying to say and say using that term, but that's not the way that it needs to be approached. So, you know, I went to the hospital. I stayed there for a few days and had a lot of time to think about it. And it was the interesting thing was that the cloud that was around my mind when I was, you know, attempting to end my life, trying to come up with how to do it. Um, and I won't go into the details on that, but I will say when in looking for the things to try to, you know, to try to help people with that, a lot of times there's nothing really symbolic about it. For me, it was just, this is what I can do with the least amount of people noticing. So I went to the hospital, I got better. And, you know, I, that cloud for my mind when I was just caught in the chaos of, you know, just being so tired that I just couldn't keep going in my life. I, that was cleared and I was able to think. And at that point I didn't, the thoughts of suicide weren't there at that point. But the cycle had been so, you know, perpetual in my life that it kept, you know, it came and went. And at that point, I didn't think it was actually gone. I was like, okay, it's, you know, I did try it. And that that was something big that happened. And maybe I'll get more of a break than normal. But I can't just think that, you know, that's it. It's the end. 
Um, Mike, on behalf of our listeners, thanks for your courage to share that part of your story. I think you do a good job of taking using vocabulary to take us to where you were. I wrote down a bunch of these words, just um, stuck, tired, pain, done, really tired. <laughs> um, and you've been on this seven and a half years. Yeah. And I, it helps me understand kind of where you were. Mm-hmm. And the logic and just ending the pain, yeah, and just tired and and the contrast between where you were then and where you were in high school, you're pretty um you are a valedictorian, and so this oh. is not this is taking an incredible toll on you to bring you to the point where you're not functioning the way you would have normally mm-hmm. given your gifts and attributes and so yeah. it connects the dots for me and just helps, I think, maybe perhaps our listeners understand why people get in this space and hopefully to better recognize it in ourselves and others and get help. Yes. And as far as getting help, that was one of the main thoughts that I thought about after you know, my experience with attempting suicide and trying to end my life. Um, because having... Now, attempted suicide came with its own set of new challenges. I, you know, there are still very heavy and institutionalized stigmas against discussing suicide and suicide ideation to this very day. Um, you know, suicide no longer being a crime, which, where the term committed suicide comes from. Interesting. Is still much more of a recent um, much more of a recent occurrence than many people realize, I think. And the, one of the first things I thought after was, how am I going to talk to people about this? Because not only was I having su- suicide ideation, now I've actually tried to do it. And it's just this another, uh, no, no it's just this different weight that's been added to me now of do I talk about this or and risk people, you know, avoiding me or just not wanting to, you know, have to talk about that because it might make them uncomfortable or do I, you know, talk about it and share about it in order to, you know, help myself heal and move through it because when I was thinking about before I had um, gone through with my suicide attempt, I did not. After it happened, I realized just how badly at that time I wanted to talk to somebody about it. And I just couldn't. And I had talked to people about having thoughts of suicide before. And like I said, you know, people generally got very worried, which is certainly you know, you don't want to take that situation lightly because it is serious, but also, you know, you don't want to make the situation worse by overreacting. And so I just didn't know how to talk about it. It's like, hey, I couldn't talk about it then. How do I talk about it now after, after it's happened? How much are people going to want to know? And... I realized that I really did want to talk about it still, both, you know, having to deal with suicide ideation, but also having attempted suicide as well. 
And but the only thing holding me back was, you know, those stigmas that I that we deal with today. And very early on, I knew I wanted to talk about it. I wasn't sure how. About six months after that was finally when I decided I should post about this. I should make a post on social media about this on Facebook and Instagram because the longer I thought about it, the longer the more I realized I can't, you know, avoid this conversation. It needs to happen in order to really be able to move on from it. And will it be a hard conversation? Absolutely. But hard conversations can't be avoided just because it might be difficult or uncomfortable for one or more people involved in the conversation. Especially if the benefits of that conversation could be somebody, you know, feeling okay with who they are, you know, not feeling, being able to, you know, not necessarily get rid of that suicide ideation. I still have it to this day, but I'm, have a much better control over it because I've been able to be honest about talking with it at this point. And so six months after I finally realized I wanted to post um, and trying to figure out how exactly I would do that, what I would say, writing out different drafts of things, coming up with different ideas, I finally came up with the post that you were able to see on um, my Instagram and I had it on Facebook as well. Um, in which I talked about the, the main phrase I used. I started by giving the phone number for the um, National Suicide Hotline, which is a wonderful resource, I think. But I said, this phone number needs, should not be the only, the only source of relief for people dealing with suicide ideation. That wasn't exactly what I said, but it's the, the message of what it was. And I talked about my own experience with suicide ideation and also in generally, generally as well, my experience with depression and anxiety and how that contributed to suicide ideation and made it worse. And what I wished I had been able to do at this point, what I wished I could have told people um, so that people could have helped more and how much I wished that these conversations would have happened earlier and maybe something could have been done for me or other people as well. Because as of this time right now, the suicide is the 12th leading cause of, of death in the United States. And that is, I, I'm wondering at what point it's going to get any more serious that it needs to be not only discussed and find solutions for, but to even talk about it openly at all. It's a really good, this is just, you know, we've had a lot of people on the podcast talk about suicide. We've probably had less suicide survivors, um, Michael, that have sort of walked this road. So I think what you're sharing is very helpful to others and just keep sharing. You know, I will just add one thing and then I'll turn it back to Michael. In my second book, um, improving Latter-day Saint culture, there is a chapter on, um, chapter six is creating better understanding of mental illness and suicide. And, um, I don't want to give you homework assignments, but you know, if you're a ward council or a presidency or a family, you could take that chapter and invite people to read it, then come together and say, you know, 
well, how can we talk about this? As Michael suggested, there's a lot of church references in there. There's Elder Redland's video, Sister Roberto's talk. There's church content that you can bring forward to talk about this subject. So I think, you know, Michael's kind of helping us understand we need to learn to talk about this. And I think in the culture of our wards and the culture of our families, and sometimes we shy away from these harder subjects, but I think we need to learn how to talk about these at church and in our families. And that's just a suggestion. If you, um, as a potential starting point is to, you know, get this chapter six and, and Jen just use that as a, as a platform to, and this podcast to uh, Michael's podcast in particular to talk about the subject, but I'll turn it back to you. All right. Thank you, Richard. And so in going from there in creating my post, some of the main things I thought about were, you know, the people that talk about suicide and suicide ideation, it has become so much better um, in more recent years and recent decades. And we are making improvements and those do need to be recognized. Um, while at the same time remembering there's still many things that we need to keep doing and, you know, we need to continue putting in that effort to, um, improve ourselves as well as improve, you know, the social environments in which we, in, in which we find ourselves. And one of the things I noticed and, you know, people discussing suicide and I went and looked at, you know, a lot of these places. And these uh, panels or articles talking about suicide after having dealt with my own, I, I noticed a lot of times we see things from experts, we see things from um, people that have you know lost people, lost loved ones, or people who are close to them to suicide. And at that point, I kind of realized. I wasn't seeing a lot of people that actually talked about their own experience with it. Um, and there, there were people that had, you know, talked about feeling suicidal, but also, you know, there, there weren't a lot that I heard from survivors of suicide as well. And, you know, that gap there was stood out to me because that's what I was looking for. I wanted to know, you know, how do I move on from this? And there didn't seem to be a lot of, you know, resources that I could find for that in order to go with that. And so at a certain point I said, why can't I talk about this? You know, we, I'm the one who went through it. I know what I felt. I know, you know specifically what I felt. And it, it, it does sound similar to a lot of what somebody who has know dealt with suicide ideation felt but hasn't you know tried to in their life in that similar way it's just came to a point where and that's when i decided to make my post i said okay i i can do this and i can be the one to talk about this and start the conversations and there were three specific points that i want to that i felt people should know that in general on what to do with that. Um, one, and, and this is talking to people who, are, who have experienced suicide ideation or who want to learn more about that in order to better help people that are um, dealing with that. Uh, the first point is that people dealing with suicide, suicide ideation 
really aren't looking for answers from my own experience and having talked with other friends who have had similar experiences in dealing with that. I had already tried so many answers and tried to go through that in order to find out what, you know, I should do in order to solve this problem or move past it or get rid of it or ignore it. Just many methods that all eventually didn't work completely. And a lot of times when people were, when I tried to talk to people, they would say, oh, I really don't have answers. Like maybe you could try this, this and this. And they, I just kind of said, tried it, tried it, tried it. And, you know, it just made it even more frustrating where, you know, I, I, First that I, they didn't think why, you know, I've already, I've been the one dealing with this personally for so long. What makes you think I haven't already thought of it? And then also just when dealing with that, when, when somebody's dealing with suicide ideation, their thought process is often just so chaotic and all over the place and irrational that trying to add something else to it, you know, trying to add something else to something that's already chaotic and over, overly filled is in fact going to make it worse instead of better. So if somebody wants to talk to you about, you know, the fact that they're having, dealing with suicide ideation, um, they're thinking about suicide, then, you know, they're not going for answers. They're trying to go for understanding because that leads to my next two points. What they really need is being my second point. They're going, they need to know that they don't, that they aren't weak, broken, or worthless. Um, and like I said, because they're having an irrational thought process, it's important to try to be as direct about that as possible and letting them know that. Let them know that you still value them, that, you know, they're still loved and wanted. And, you know, having suicide ideation doesn't mean that they are. A bad person. They're not. They're they aren't. You know, permanently stuck some way, or even like that way at all to begin with. They're. It's basically just your mind and body telling you this is extremely painful, and we need to find a way out of this. This is an option. They're considering all options, and that's always there. And I, I, I think that should tell you the level of pain somebody's feeling, that that becomes an option at that point. And my third point is that, that I think people should know, is people need to know that having those thoughts of suicide isn't going to lead to them being abandoned and left alone or ignored because they're already feeling like that so much as well. And instead of telling them what they should do, you know, I know a lot of people that are well-meaning say, hold on, just keep going. Things will get better. Try not to do that. Try not to think about it. Try to change your perspective. I know people mean well, but it, it's never going to help personally going through that. I always rationalize that away. Said, you know, 
they're really just trying to change that. They don't completely understand what I'm feeling. So it doesn't quite apply to this. And I think the better way of approaching this is if somebody talks to you and trusts you enough to tell you about their feelings of suicide ideation. Tell them what you're going to do. Tell them you're going to stay by them. Tell them you're going to answer the phone anytime they might need somebody to talk to. Tell them you're going to love them and make sure you recognize the good things that they're doing, the progress that they're making, and so many other ways in which that can be done. You know, there, as I said before, I was tired. I had no energy. I woke up every day physically exhausted because I did not have the energy because it was all being taken up mentally and dealing with and trying not to give in to the suicide ideation. So I, you know, and being told what to do, first of all, I already heard it. I knew that answer. I tried to, I'd already tried it. But also I was just so tired that I really couldn't do much anymore. If somebody had said, no, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be the one that puts in the effort to help you. That would have shocked me so much that it would have knocked me out of the chaotic thinking process. And I think that's part of it. Like they, the irrational thinking is so in depth that it's going to take quite an amount of force to pull somebody out of that. It's going to be, you're, you're going to need a lot of it. And so if you really show them that you're there for them, and if they try to rationalize it and say, it's like, oh, you don't want to do that. Like you can, you can, you know, you can, you, you are able to say, you can't tell me what I want to do. I want to help you. I'm going to be here for you. You can do what you want, but this is what I'm going to do. I love those three suggestions. And um, I think that's none of us need clinical training to do the things that Michael's just suggested. Um, but it takes a little effort to do what Michael suggested. Uh, I love, you know, I love where sometimes it's the phrase, it's all going to get better, may not be helpful. One of my guests or somebody I met with, um, said, you know, I said, well, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And he looked me in the eyes and says, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. Where I am right now, that is not helpful. There is no light at the All end right. of the tunnel. You are underestimating how long this tunnel is. And it kind of was an eye-opener to me to recognize that just pointing to the future in this case was not helpful. I need to sit with this person in the difficulty of the situation. And then your suggestions say, I will sit with you. Um, I will be with you. And a lot, sometimes people push people away because they're protecting themselves because other people have said that Yeah, and they leave. And so it just sort of is painful, but mm-hmm. um, this is where I think as Latter-day Saints, we can minister and be fully present for people that are in this difficult situation, yes. whatever our stewardship is. So that was a really good segment. I'd love, I think there's one more segment we want to get through. Um, how to have hard conversations, be open-minded. So do you want to go to that at this point? I do. Yes, I am. Because, you know, part of the issue is that it's not being talked about. Suicide Mm -hmm. and suicide ideation are still stigmatized heavily and avoided subjects. And I, if we want to 
you know, do anything about it if we want it to, you know, work towards a solution at this point. You know, I don't know any solution that's ever been found by ignoring it or not discussing it. It's just expecting it to magically appear is just not going to be helpful. And so there, there are some conversations in which I've, that have been very difficult that I've had to have because, you know, they're, they can be uncomfortable for me trying to bring it up because I know I'm going against a social norm and, you know, trying to fight against a stigma that has been around for so long and is just very persistent. Um, or somebody that might have to change their perspective and be uncomfortable as well. And sometimes I have people tell me, it's like, you know, if I'm really trying to say something and, you know, it's just not really getting through and it's feeling, starting to feel heated, somebody might tell me, I don't want to argue. And at a certain point, I've learned to say we might have to because the conversation needs to be had. And I know a lot of people, you know, are worried about contention and argument. Um, you know, some of the main things that I always hear people say, don't talk about politics or religion. Um, you know, two things in which the purpose of them is to try to find solutions. I, people say that as if, you know, the, the topics themselves are causing arguments. And I found that to not be the case. I've had plenty of, you know, discussions on both. You know, I served my mission. I talked about, you know, the church doesn't believe in not talking about religion. Um, and I've had plenty of conversations as a political science major in which I have, you know, talked and had discussions with people who have very different perspectives to mine. And they have been wonderful conversations in which we both listened to each other, um, in which we both had, you know, very like valid reasons and arguments in order to support both of our sides and to discuss those. And, you know, they were very helpful and productive in coming together and trying to understand each other's perspectives. So I, I, I think the excuse of, you know, not avoiding topics like that in order to avoid argument and contention is not good because, you know, it's, Arguments or discussions like that only become contentious and toxic if one or more people in the conversation is not being open-minded. If they are not really giving enough consideration to somebody's perspective or you know, the evidence that they have to support it. And because I know if I'm saying something and I've looked, researched into it and tried to, you know, I have sources to back up what I'm saying, I'm going to have a very difficult time listening to you if you've refused to listen to me after I put in all that effort. And so with that, you know, those hard conversations are only difficult when we're closing our, closing our minds and only looking at our own perspective and refusing to, you know, follow the example of the Savior and you know, seeing what's happened there. One example from the scriptures that I always like to go back to is the woman taken in adultery. And, you know, the Pharisees bring a woman who was caught, you know, committing adultery and they're asking Christ or asking the Savior to try to, you know, say it's like, hey, we found her. We need to punish her because she's broken a commandment. 
And, you know, the, po- the point of view of the Pharisees is that they are, you know, a commandment's been broken and a judgment needs to happen. But the view that Christ took, and Christ knew that to be true, but he also knew that was only part of the picture. He saw the perspective of the woman and Christ being perfect knew the entire situation and was therefore the only one actually qualified to judge on the matter. And he, you know, saw the perspective of the woman. He knew that, you know, she wasn't a perfect person, that she was extremely prone to mistakes as we all are, as the Pharisees were, um, you know, that the Pharisees were, you know, jumping to that because that's what they knew though as well. And he, that's why he didn't just jump up and start telling the Pharisees off. He saw their perspective too. He knew that that was the context in which they grew up and that they were products of the way in which they were raised. And he just simply said, if, you know, somebody, you know, if you feel you're good enough to cast judgment, go ahead. And nobody was really able to do that. I think those simple answers are very telling and that we can it's it doesn't take much for us to question ourselves because there is plenty to, there to question um for me i try to say it's like you know what mistakes have i made out of the many there are so many mistakes that actually it's more of you know what stakes am i seeing at this moment what mistakes of mine am i seeing at this moment that i can work on that might be clouding my judgment. Um, and because of that, I've learned to just try to listen more than I talk. I ask questions in order to, you know, try to find information, you know, where are my knowledge gaps? And I try to be willing to, at some point, to say, I, was wrong. I had incorrect information. I either found incorrect information myself. I made an assumption. Somebody gave me incorrect information, whatever it may be to say, no, I was wrong. This wasn't the way to look at it. And I need to act accordingly and, and move from there. I love that. Um, I'll just share some thoughts and then I'll turn it back to Michael. But um, listeners, I've read this quote before. It's a Brene Brown quote. It helps you understand, and maybe this quote won't or won't, will or won't resonate with you, Michael, but it sort of helped me understand why someone, um, a gay Latter-day Saint who's looking at five decades being celibate to fully participate in the church might feel feelings of suicidal suicide. Uh, and um, not belonging or physiological isolating is the most terrifying and destructive feeling a person can experience. It's not the same as being alone. It's the feeling that one is locked out of the possibility of human connection and powerless to change the situation. In the extreme, this physiological isolation can lead to a sense of hopelessness and desperation. People will do almost anything to escape the combination of condemned isolation and powerlessness. So what do we do? Um, Brene Brown talks about embrace, value, empathize, and including people that they belong with us. So 
maybe that's some of the feelings you still feel, but certainly felt like, how do I do this? Um, I, I still wonder how, like, what if I am doing what I'm needing to be doing and trying to make improvements as I go, I have not, I don't purport to say that I have all the answers and I am trying to learn myself still. And then I thought of your suicide attempt and I liked the way you used and helped with language. And I actually thought of this quote from Apollo 13, um, which was, you know, in that spaceship looked like it was doomed. And the, this is the quote with all due respect, sir. I think this is going to be our finest hour. And in some ways, even though that was one of your most difficult times, I think it may have been one of your finest hours because of what you've done since then. And the fact that you've talked about, we'll link to your Instagram post. If that's a public post, we can link to it. Yeah, I can definitely try to um, just help people see that as well and have it. I've wanted to try to reach as many people as I could, and this has been you know, a wonderful way in which to do that. But, you know, I think that's, you know, what we think may be our darkest hours, listeners. I think the real test of our character is what we do with those difficult times. And I like the what you've done, not yeah. only for you personally and the growth and the understanding, but your willingness to talk about it. And that leads to my next quote that I share a lot on this podcast. <laughs> um, it's from Henry Norn with the Catholic minister. He says, a, minister, a Catholic priest, he says, a minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led of a desert by someone who's never been there. So that's one of your gifts, Michael, yeah. is your ability to lead um, gay, lesbian, bisexual Latter-day Saints out of that desert of no hope, um, and also people that are working through feelings of suicide ideation, and it's one of your great gifts. Yeah, and I do, part of that, what I like is just not, you know, in order to be completely effective, we have to have we have to know as much as we can what those actually feel like. And that's going to require hard conversations. I think, you know, some of us, we want to avoid hard conversations because maybe that'll point out, you know, the, our own mistakes that we've made in our life. And as difficult as that can be, if we, you know, let that keep us from having those conversations that could really help people, you know, that's in a way that is a bit selfish because you're, we're, saying, you know, this experience that you've had that has been so painful and tiring and real is I, I can't deal with it because, you know, it might require some effort from me. And, you know, I can understand that people are trying to do everything they can, but also at some point we all have to put in that effort in order to have hard conversations. Um, including about suicide and suicide ideation that are uncomfortable because we just have been, you know, taught to not talk about them. And all, at part of that, just remembering not to discount the experiences of others, um, how, what it's like to be LGBTQ. Um, you know, sometimes I've had people, you know, as a member of the church say, it's like, oh, are you really sure you felt the spirit that that's also an example of discounting somebody's experience? And I know a lot of members have an issue with that as well. So 
if they do have an issue with their own feelings of spirit discounted, then, you know, don't discount the feelings of somebody, you know, the experiences that they feel and their challenges and, you know, their, what they have to go through that you don't understand because you haven't had to go through that and you likely never will have to go through that, which makes it even more important to listen. And I did, you know, part of my experience is political science, international diplomacy. I was part of BYU's Model United Nations team, which is one of my favorite things that I've ever done at school. And I, part of that was learning skills in order to talk with people in person that all had different ideas that were representing, you know, countries and what the ideas and ideologies of those countries that might not be what they believe in personally. So they have to completely put themselves in that perspective in order to make it, um, in order to really succeed in doing that. And that taught me most to learn to listen to people, no matter what their ideas are. People, you know, there are, even if you don't listen to their ideas, those ideas don't go away. Those people don't go away. They're still part of, they, they still live in this world. They interact in the same environments you do. And if you decide not to listen to them, they're just going to go, they're going to learn, first of all, to not listen themselves because people, you know, not listening is okay. And people just get pushed to like further, you know, assumptions and extremes because of that. It's that, you know, those problems compound from there. And so, you know, being gay, because being gay taught me most of all that I, before I finally realized it, I never tried to figure out what that was like. And so I had my own experiences growing up that shaped what I believed in. And when I finally realized I was gay, that challenged my belief so much of what I knew to be true that I had to, I was forced to take another perspective or deny reality. And so I think if more people took the chance to really not only look outside of their comfort zones, but jump outside because it's going to be hard. It is going to be difficult. And so maybe just trying to do that to a certain extent will help people. And most importantly of all is that we just need to remember to listen to people. If you want to be listened to, then you need to do that for other people as well. Um, as a member, as while I was on my mission, you know, we told people that if you know they wanted to learn about their church, our church, they should really you know talk to us about it instead of what anybody else might say. And you know, if we hadn't listened to them as they were talking about their concerns as well, if we just you know said the script that we heard all the time, it's like okay, we need to just tell them you know the gospel is true and bear a testimony without actually taking in what they're saying as well. It's never going to work and be successful. So learning to listen is one of the most important lessons I've had in my life. And I will continue to do as I try to tell about my own experiences and allow other people to share theirs as well. Love that. Um, it's been a great podcast, Michael. You know, my impression is just to, you know, I'm not your father, your priest, leader, <sighs> but I just, you're a remarkable man who 
one of the th- feelings I get as I meet with gay Latter-day Saints is they've developed a spiritual maturity and a depth because they just had to figure out more of answers for themselves. Yeah. Um, it and, was and so a survival situation. 27 with the, the depth you have in multiple areas, and that just gives me hope for your future and your ability to heal and help others as you've talked openly about your journey. And we need vulnerable, authentic connections. That's the way we heal each other versus sometimes culturally we're just this culture of perfectionism or just putting forth our best self that we need to put forth our real self so we can sort of heal and help each other and be vulnerable. Yeah. So listeners, we're going to sign off, but act on any impressions you felt in this podcast that could help you have the courage to reach out if you're in a tough spot. Um, not only for you, but your ability then to help others that are in a tough spot. Um, that's one of the great gifts you can give, just like Michael's giving that, and and help all of us just to come together as the same human family. So this is Michael Finch and Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Thank you, Richard.